Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. Have you ever wondered why you can't buy a life insurance policy on just anyone you know? or even on someone you don't know. And why can't you buy an insurance policy to cover the results of a bet between two people? Today I'm talking about English law and the Gambling Act of 1774, which probably no one listening has heard of. But it is a big part of the reason I can't buy an insurance policy on whether or not that couple from TLC's 90 Day Fiancé get married after all. Join me for a discussion of life insurance, gambling, and scandal. I'm starting today with the ending rather than the beginning of the story. In 1774, an act of Parliament called the Life Assurance Act was passed in England. This act is better known as the Gambling Act of 1774, though I suspect very few of you listening has ever heard of it. It was new to me. The act is very short, just four paragraphs, but it had a big impact on the development of insurance in England and the rest of the Western world as well as the direction of commerce and the economy in England going forward. Historians usually refer to it as the Gambling Act of 1774, because the primary thing it was meant to address was the rampant, unregulated use of life insurance and policies related to life insurance, often called life contingency policies, for speculation and outright gambling. 18th century Englishmen and women were wild about gambling, whether it be games of chance, lotteries, or in this case, insurance. For example, gentlemen's clubs like White's commonly had club betting books where members could bet, and most of those bets involved those situations I referred to as life contingencies, births, marriages, etc. White's was the most famous, but betting was embedded in the social life of England in every class, not just the aristocracy. What's interesting to me is that the type of betting we mostly think of today, betting on sports, wasn't a thing back then. In White's betting book, there were few, if any, bets about things like horse races. Before this act, there had been very little government regulation of insurance at all in England, and no regulation of anything related to life insurance. Most of what little had been done was enacted in a piecemeal fashion, with the occasional laser-focused regulation issued by Parliament, or it was based on the handful of court cases tried in the English courts. Part of this was due to a generally hands-off position on the industry, and part of it was due to the tax revenue insurance policies brought the English government that they really didn't want to lose. And while it wasn't stated specifically in the Act, the Gambling Act of 1774 signaled a shift in how the English government wanted to regulate insurance as well, which would have a significant impact going forward. Rather than outright ban certain types of insurance they felt were problematic, certainly, They could have just chosen to ban life insurance and life contingency insurance entirely, something most of Europe had already done some years prior. They focused on eliminating the moral issues, like the motivation of the people taking out those policies, and chose to restrict those reasons for purchasing insurance that they felt were immoral. In plain English, the Act stated you could no longer take out any insurance policy if you did not have an insurable interest in that policy. This was the first time that the term insurable interest was used, 
which is one of the most essential concepts in insurance today. I'll circle back to that idea and explain it further, but it's a big deal. In addition, you could not use insurance policies any longer for the purpose of betting, and any policy written under those circumstances was, as of this date in 1774, automatically voided. You could no longer write a policy of insurance without specifically naming the people who would benefit from that policy on the policy itself. Before this act, any person could take out an insurance policy on any other person's life, whether they knew them or not. And you could take out a life insurance policy on someone without their permission or without ever letting them know that such a policy existed. Even if you did have this so-called insurable interest in the person or item being insured, you could not recover more money than the value of your insurable interest from the policy. This meant you could not make a profit off your insurance anymore. All of these regulations, however, did not apply to insurance policies written on ships, goods, and merchandise, because similar regulations had been enacted with the passage of the Marine Insurance Act, which affected mostly merchants, unlike this act, which affected far more people. While the Marine Insurance Act suggested that the concept of insurable interest existed, it did not specifically coin the term, nor did it define it. Now, you'll probably say, okay, that sounds interesting, I guess. But the really interesting part, to be honest, is how England got to the point where a law like this was even necessary. It's useful to take a quick step back and define how life insurance started in the Western world. Life insurance as a concept had been around in many parts of Europe since the 14th century. It probably started in Italy, where port cities saw a significant amount of trading via merchant ships. As you may remember, insurance for the value of a ship and its cargo, was one of the earliest types of insurance in the world. And at some point in the 14th century, someone asked the question about whether or not an insurance contract could be written on the life of a merchant crew member. What if they did not come back alive from a particular voyage? Could that be compensated if a policy was written to cover the length of the voyage? An early life insurance product called ransom insurance was created to address this need, but I believe that while it was called ransom insurance, it simply covered a death abroad. These days, we have something called kidnap and ransom insurance, which covers the costs to recover someone who has been kidnapped. But I don't think the word ransom had quite the same meaning then as it does today. Life insurance in Europe, where it had originally developed, came to a screeching halt not too soon after it started to take off. Mostly, this was related to a pre-Enlightenment worldview that saw the Christian God as the reason for any major event in a person's life. To try to ensure an event that people saw as an inevitable result of God's plan was considered sacrilegious, even profane. For England, it was a slightly different story, probably partly because England wasn't yet a major shipping titan in the same way that places like Italy or Spain were in that time period, Life insurance came later to England, sometime in the early 16th century. Also, the English government realized that life insurance policies could be taxed, and they really, really needed the money. The first known life insurance policy in England was written in the 1580s. Ransom policies, those policies that covered the death of a merchant crew member abroad, weren't the major driver of the industry. Instead, life insurance was primarily a way to guarantee a loan from default. If you wanted to take out a loan, maybe for the purchase of a military commission or for land or merchandise, it was likely you didn't have a lot of collateral to back that loan to ensure that the lender was paid if you defaulted. 
Keep in mind the lender was normally not a bank, as commercial banking really didn't exist back then. It was typically a person or a business. As part of the loan agreement, the person borrowing the money would take out a life insurance policy on themselves. The beneficiary of the policy, who would receive the money if the person died, was the creditor. The policy was usually taken out for a short length of time, depending on the size of the loan. The idea was that the person would pay back the loan within that policy period, and the policy was extra protection in case they died before it was repaid. While the concept of insuring your own life so that at your death your spouse or children would be financially protected did exist, it was still quite unusual. Those who did take out policies like that were typically merchants or tradesmen who recognized that at their deaths, their businesses would likely cease to exist and therefore could no longer provide a living for their descendants. But even with those policies, the length of a policy was typically a few months or a year, so it did not lend itself to the development of what we now typically think of in terms of life insurance. Life insurance policy terms were very short. The length of a loan, the length of a particular ship voyage, a few months or a year or two maximum. Still, life insurance in England was relatively rare until the 1800s, which, while probably a little disappointing for people who wanted to sell it, meant it was never high-profile enough to be outlawed like it was in Europe. There were other reasons, too. The Enlightenment had started, which meant people were beginning to question the concept of fate and divine will, the unique properties of English common law as opposed to European legal precedent, as well as the fact that when life insurance began to ramp up in England, the drivers of that expansion were often religious leaders who saw it as a unique way to improve English society. This is such a bizarre thought to me because developing at the same time but in sort of a parallel universe from these English clergymen, life insurance related to the transport of enslaved people from the African continent was slowly, quietly, becoming the bedrock of the entire life insurance industry, not only in England but in Europe too. Even as these parallel institutions developed to write life insurance and life insurance-related products for English citizens, more than half of life insurance-type policies written in England were supporting the Atlantic slave trade. The English clergy could not have been unaware of this. And while it is absolutely infuriating to me that insurance supported the Atlantic slave trade in this way, I can also say that insurance was a big part of the reason the slave trade and slavery were banned in England years later. Stay tuned, that episode is coming, I promise. But before I get there, it's good to understand how the rest of the industry worked. When you think of English clergymen encouraging their fellow citizens to purchase life insurance, you might think that the reasoning had to do with providing for the less fortunate— and in a way, you might be right. At that time, a lot of religious groups in England thought that if they could get people to take out a life insurance policy that would provide financial certainty to their descendants, this freedom from worrying about what money would be left to their heirs meant that you would be more likely to donate more money to the church while you were alive. Sure, they also saw life insurance as a way to protect the families of deceased local clergymen to keep their families from being the responsibility of society, and probably to keep them from having to pay the clergy more while they were still alive. But to be honest, the giving more money to the church thing seems to be the overwhelming driving force. And their participation in the life insurance products that developed lent an air of respectability to an industry that was also trying to attract people by making it 
exciting. During this phase of life insurance development in England, five different types of life insurance were explored, most of which appeared during a life insurance boom in the early 18th century. While most of these are no longer popular today, and some no longer exist at all, there are aspects of each that appear in modern insurance. I like to think that they were just trying things out to see what worked, what could sell, and what could survive financially over time. Almost all of them had a speculative or gambling aspect in some way, probably partly to appeal to English consumers in the 18th century by making them a bit more exciting. I won't get into all of these types of insurance today, but basically they included mortuary tontines. Tontine is such a fun word to say, right? Tontine. Something called reversionary annuities, contributorships, premium insurance companies, and outright speculation and gambling policies. Some of these types of life insurance setups didn't just cover what we consider today as life insurance, aka taking a policy out on a person related to you that pays a certain amount of money when that person dies. Sometimes they looked more like something we'd call a life contingency, which is an event a person might want to insure because it incurs a certain unexpected cost. For example, in England in the 18th century, you could insure things like the successful birth of a child, a completed marriage contract, the cost and success of an apprenticeship, and even the continuation of domestic service, basically that your servants would stay with you for some period of time. These seem like very strange bedfellows, but they did have one thing in common. Most of them were events that required an outlay of a chunk of money that most people either had to borrow or they were amounts that they had saved that they couldn't afford to lose. If you think back to the first life insurance policies in England that served as a guarantee on a loan, these types of policies make sense. What's interesting about these early life contingency policies is that they were often underwritten by individuals who weren't traditionally part of either the insurance marketplace or, in a lot of cases, people who were even participating in capitalism in a traditional sense. It was sort of like a small business you could set up for yourself without any insurance background. I found one mention of a woman, Dorothy Petty, who had set up an insurance office to write these types of policies and was able to support herself in doing so. There were no women, as far as I know, at Lloyd's or writing insurance more traditionally at that time and, frankly, for quite a long time after. A lot of these policies were written as a kind of pyramid scheme. You contributed to a pot of money that paid out claims, and those people who joined later often ended up paying out for those who had joined early. Since most people exited the scheme after a claim had been paid, the people who entered late often would not find any money in the pot to pay their claims, and the schemes collapsed. Sometimes it was outright fraud. Sometimes it was simply a total lack of understanding of how something like this would work successfully. But England outlawed these policies in about 1720, which only forced them underground. They didn't go away, and that makes sense because banking in England as we know it today was still in its infancy in the 18th century, and these types of underground insurance schemes became a lending economy that served people without a lot of other options. For the rest of these types of insurance, fraud certainly existed, but it was overshadowed by the inability of these insurance programs to stay afloat in general. Frankly, there were a lot of unanswered questions for these people who were creating these schemes. How do you estimate the possibility of a policy being paid out? How many policies could someone who was underwriting life insurance afford to pay out every year and still be a viable business concern? 
This was a question that life insurance just couldn't answer. I'm sure early life insurance underwriters thought they had a pretty good handle on it just by, you know, using their intuition, like, for example, an older person in poor health, whatever that meant back then, was more likely to die than a younger person in good health, whatever that meant. But that's just really guessing based on experience and bias, right? But trust me when I say that you might have some luck doing that on one policy or maybe two, but if you have a lot of policies, you start to see that your intuition doesn't always pan out. And of course, back then, there were a lot more things that could kill you, well before penicillin, vaccines, or sanitary medical techniques, or sanitary anything, frankly. Some people tried to come up with a way to scientifically estimate the possibility of death by building the first crude mortality tables. A man named John Grant wanted to see if it was possible to estimate this by gathering data from records of baptisms, burials, and other notices about deaths and illnesses in London in 1662. But his estimate was hampered by the extremely transient population of London during this time and all the information he was able to obtain. For example, he couldn't account for all the people who were ill, who left London and died soon after somewhere else, or people who came to London from other places and died soon after arriving. The data was pretty useless. But the idea was valid. And a few years later, a man named Edmund Halley, and yes, that's the same Halley who discovered Halley's Comet, he had the idea of trying to find more of a closed community to evaluate. He chose a city in today's Poland that was relatively fixed in population. People didn't move there or leave there very often. His table also included a breakdown in mortality by age, something that Grant didn't consider, but it's extremely important for writing life insurance, as you might imagine. Of course, those people on his mortality table were living in a small community in Poland and not a large city like London, where disease and danger were probably more prevalent. The tables had value, but there were obvious issues. Nonetheless, there seemed to be a lot of resistance in the life insurance industry at that time to apply these, or frankly any other scientific process, to life insurance, which honestly doesn't surprise me. I don't think you see that type of analysis applied to pretty much any type of insurance until the 19th century anyway. But... If you have an industry that's relying on intuition and guessing to determine whether or not a particular policy is going to be a net win or loss, I think you can also imagine it could lead to speculative risks or outright gambling. And the government didn't seem to care much about the outright fraud, even concerning the life contingency policies that were banned in the early 18th century, they really seemed to care about the gambling aspect of the policies a lot more. In the case of life insurance in England, Gambling-related policies accelerated in outright ridiculousness after the Seven Years' War ended in the 1760s. Not that they weren't popular during the war. I mean, during the Seven Years' War, you could take out an insurance policy on whether or not a particular battle would be successful, or on any number of other questionable insurance outcomes like the life of the king. But some of the things I read suggested that Lloyd's, in particular— had done very well during the Seven Years' War, writing insurance on all kinds of things, and they saw a significant revenue drop after it ended. This revenue drop may have led to some allowance of extremely speculative and public gambling risks. One of the more egregious examples of insurance used as speculation were policies taken out in 1765 on the lives of a group of German refugees who had the misfortune of being swindled out of their passage fares to the English colonies and got stranded, penniless, in Goodman's Field in Whitechapel, an area in East London. 
none of the policyholders had even met the German refugees, and they never intended to. You'll note that this is before the English colonies became America, and if you zoom out from England to encompass what was happening in the wider world at the time, you will of course realize there was a lot of immigration happening in this time period, both by choice and not by choice, into the areas that were considered the New World, North America, South America, and the Caribbean. George III, the King of England, wanted to encourage Protestant settlement of the areas of the New World that England controlled, and so he put together a scheme where he would provide land to former and current English military officers who wanted to immigrate to the colonies. Those officers had to have served in the colonies at some point in their military careers. It was also an opportunity for those military officers to create their own communities by recruiting other immigrants to come with them. One assumes that in these new colonies, the men who had received the land grant would then, of course, become the most important person in the new settlement, and it was probably an excellent opportunity for those men to make a new life in a new place as a newly rich and influential patriarch. A real come up in the world for a lot of second sons, I imagine. One person who took His Royal Highness up on the offer was a man named Johann Heinrich Christian von Stumpel, who wasn't actually an English military man, but rather had served under Ferdinand of Brunswick, a Prussian who fielded an army force that had fought with the British during the Seven Years' War. Von Stumpel not only wasn't an English military officer, but he also had never fought on behalf of the British in the colonies. But it seems that the initial screening process for land grants was not exactly vigorous. And somehow he received the rights to about 200,000 acres in Nova Scotia. He immediately began recruiting German-speaking Protestants to join him there. A group of people from a poor region of the Rhine River Valley agreed to immigrate to Nova Scotia with him and paid von Stumpel money to help them do so. Unfortunately, it turned out that the English government reneged on their land grant after reviewing his request and realizing they had provided a man who met none of their requirements a land grant almost the size of Hong Kong. While they probably could have canceled his contract entirely, instead England revised it to only 22,000 acres, one-tenth of the original grant, and then they included a laundry list of requirements that needed to be fulfilled, including planting certain crops for the English government and mineral and land rights. Von Stumpel, who most historians agreed didn't enter into this venture with the initial intent to defraud the settlers, decided to cut his losses and disappeared with the settlers' funds after they had already boarded ships from Europe to England for the first part of their journey. As a result, the immigrants not only had no money, but then discovered their passage on those boats from Europe to England had not been paid either, and they ended up stranded, not even halfway through their journey, outside London without shelter or food in a field behind a church. The total number of immigrants stranded? Well, here's where history gets funny. I have yet to find a definitive number. Some academic articles even used different numbers in the same article. But I think we can say there were at least 300 men, women, and children. They were stranded without food and water for at least three days before anyone bothered to try and help them. In a truly gruesome fashion, various insuring entities like Lloyd's started writing policies for people who wanted to bet on how many of the stranded immigrants would die before help arrived. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data on whether or not any of these policies paid out. History is pretty clear and for once pretty agreed that 10 immigrants died in that field during the time they were stranded there. The situation of the German refugees got a lot of press at the time all through England and Europe, and some better angels did take it upon themselves to try and help. Various religious groups and individuals began donating funds to help the refugees. Even the king gave 300 pounds. 
Eventually, the immigrants were able to obtain passage to the New World through the largesse of the English government, who helped to fund the voyage. But instead of settling in Nova Scotia, they created a colony in South Carolina called Londonderry. Most of the settlers moved on from Londonderry during the Revolutionary War, and the town was totally gone by the early 19th century. But the stories about the insurance taken out on the settlers left a bad taste in the mouths of many people in England. But it was another widely discussed case that involved inheritance that pushed the English Parliament to make a move. This case involved two life insurance policies that started out as logical and then took a sharp left turn. William Piggott was an aristocrat who was heir to his father's modest fortune. Sir William Codrington was the heir to a long line of William Codringtons who had come before him. The two men were friends in London, and both were in the type of debt that your standard aristocratic heir got into those days, you know, tailor bills, betting IOUs, etc. The two of them had the brilliant idea to purchase insurance policies on their fathers as part of a bet. The bet itself, which wasn't part of the insurance contract as far as I can tell, was that whoever's father died first, therefore the first one of them to inherit their father's fortune, would then pay the remainder of their friend's debts after they received their inheritance. While the reasoning for taking out the policies was pretty suspect due to the speculative nature of the bet itself, actually taking out a life insurance policy on your parent was something that could be done at this time. These days, depending on the jurisdiction, taking out a life insurance policy on a parent is illegal. But the fact that these men took out policies on their fathers without their parents' consent or knowledge was definitely problematic. Rather than let the bet go, another aristocrat, the Earl of March, offered to take Codrington's place in the bet and by association become the beneficiary of the life insurance policy taken out on Codrington's father. The life insurance policies were signed with Piggott, the beneficiary of the policy on his father, and the Earl of March, the beneficiary of the policy on Codrington's father. What none of them knew was that the morning that this bet was made and the accompanying insurance policies were put into place, Piggott's father had died 150 miles away in another county. When William Piggott found out, he said that because his father had died before the contracts were signed, they were invalid and that he would not pay a penny towards the bet. The Earl of March was left with an insurance policy he felt he should be compensated for, and so he went to court. When the jury found in Marsh's favor, this raised a serious issue for insurance companies. This life insurance was written on someone who was already dead. As you might imagine, this wasn't something life insurance underwriters wanted to encourage, and the issues raised were ones that probably influenced the English government to act. But I would be remiss in talking about insurance policies in this time period that were gambling bets if I didn't talk about the policies taken out on a French diplomat living in London. These policies straddled the time period both before and after the Gambling Act was passed in 1774, and the fact that they were even being debated after it was passed speaks to the persistence of these issues of speculative insurance. Charles de Beaumont, the Chevalier d'Ion, was a French aristocrat who unknowingly became enmeshed in the intersection of insurance and gambling simply by existing. D'Ion had moved to England in the 1760s and had previously served in many capacities in the French government as a soldier, a diplomat, and even a spy. It was this career in spycraft that had brought D.E. on the most acclaim and, frankly, scandal, and was the reason for the relocation to England after publishing a memoir of espionage exploits that shocked the French court and resulted in royal expulsion from France. D.E. was expelled 
with a pension, which of course suggests they were likely still working undercover as a spy in some capacity while living in London, scandal and public expulsion notwithstanding. Some of De Eon's exploits as a spy were the stuff of great stories, in particular the times that De Eon, who presented to the world as a man, had dressed as a woman to hide among the French Empress's handmaidens and spy on other governments like Russia. Because of these stories about De Eon's spy-related cross-dressing, rumors in England slowly grew in the 1770s that De Eon was female. Now, why anyone would write an insurance policy on this is beyond me, but... Maybe the insurance companies knew there was no way an aristocrat would ever lower themselves to provide proof of their gender, and in that case, none of the policies would ever be paid out. About £60,000 worth of policies were taken out on De Eon by third parties. This is a staggering sum. This number didn't include the amount of money wagered outside of insurance, in betting books at gentlemen's clubs or between individuals with no formal records. Estimates of the total amount of money bet on this issue, insurance or otherwise, may have been as high as half a million pounds. The majority of the insurance policies were insured by underwriters at Lloyd's, which is... Oh, come on now. And of course, De Eon had no inclination to address this issue to prove things one way or another, and rightly so. However, in 1777, so three years after the Gambling Act was passed, De Eon had a falling out with one of his closest friends. That friend began telling people that, three years prior, De Eon confessed privately to him the truth of their gender. They were female. Again, De Eon did not respond publicly, but to the policyholders, they considered this sufficient proof to go back to their insurance companies and demand payment on their policies. Keep in mind, as per the Gambling Act's guidelines, these policies were likely null and void, but the policyholder pursued this issue regardless. Not surprisingly, the insurance companies decided to take it to court. The first case was brought in July 1777 by a London surgeon named Hayes. Again, someone who did not know De Eon, had probably never met De Eon, and certainly had no insurable interest in the gender of De Eon. The Chief Justice of the King's Bench, Lord William Mansfield, heard the case. Mansfield is considered a titan of English law, and based on what I've read, he seems like kind of a badass. And we can thank him for his important part in ending slavery in England. He will come up again in the podcast. Mansfield found the entire discussion about this case offensive, but he could not find any way to invalidate the policy legally, despite the Gambling Act's prohibition on speculative policies. I will be honest, I am not sure why this was the case, and I can only find second- and third-hand information on this. But after testimony from De Eon's former friend, and a doctor who had claimed at one time to have examined De Eon's genitals, the case went to a jury, who then stated, in their opinion, De Eon was female, and the insurance policy should be paid. De Eon, disgusted with the entire affair, decamped back to France. Not soon after, in 1778, another case involving a policy regarding De Eon's gender came up again before Lord Mansfield. Da Costa v. Jones. It's a better known and better documented case, and while Lord Mansfield did allow it to go to trial, after the jury came back with another finding that De Eon was female and the policy must be paid, the judge threw out the judgment and invalidated the policy entirely. In fact, finally, he decided to invalidate every existing insurance policy that dealt with the issue of whether or not De Eon was female, something that probably should have been done several years prior when the Gambling Act passed. The problem was, 
the way Mansfield's legal ruling was worded. It threw out the policies on Deion, but not the finding in the Hayes case the year prior, the finding that Deion was female. Legally, as of 1777, English law concluded that Deion was female, with all the problems you can imagine that came from that. When Deion left England for France in 1777, they began dressing as female pretty much all of the time. In 1785, Deion moved back to London, still presenting as female, and stayed that way until they died in 1810. A post-mortem examination found that Deion had male genitalia. From a privacy and insurance standpoint, the entire affair was shameful. I would be remiss here not to mention that Deion was a very complicated character, and whether or not they identified as a woman is still debated. We will never know what Deion wanted the world to know. Recent scholarship is divided on whether or not Deion dressed as a woman because they were transgender, or if it was a lifelong scheme between Deion and the King of France related to spycraft. And it's why I've chosen not to assign any particular pronouns here. It's too complicated to even summarize here. If you're interested in learning more, I have left some books and sources on the website about Deion that are worth your time. After the Gambling Act was passed in 1774, the English government believed that speculative policies would end, but some persisted, as we can see in the case of the Deion policies. However, there was no additional attempt by the government to amend or expand the law for many years. It was revised slightly more than 100 years later, and again in the 1970s, but it still exists today in much the same form it was in 1774. And most importantly, it allowed the practice of life insurance to continue in England. It legitimized life insurance. It encouraged life insurance development. There were clearly still a lot of issues that needed to be worked out, but instead of doing so through parliamentary action, the courts took the lead in establishing a series of precedents in the intervening years to further clarify the Gambling Act. The primary issue was the concept of insurable interest. If you recall, the Gambling Act was the first time that this term had been used, though the general concept had been introduced in an earlier law regarding marine policies. Insurable interest is one of the core concepts of insurance, not just life insurance. Basically, it means that you would suffer some sort of financial loss or other hardship if something that you insured was damaged or lost. So this can apply not only to life insurance, but to all other kinds of insurance. For example, if you own a home, you have an insurable interest in that home because loss or damage to that building would result in a financial hit to you. If you take out a life insurance policy on your spouse, the courts would agree that you have an insurable interest in that person because their death might cause financial loss to your family. From a business standpoint, I might have an insurable interest in the property I own or merchandise I sell. Insurable interest is a big concept, and it can get a little bit hinky at times. Do you have an insurable interest in yourself, your children? Do I have an insurable interest in the building I work in but do not own? Does your boss have an insurable interest in you? There was a lot to figure out. It's still being debated today. As respects life insurance specifically, the courts needed to hammer out what relationships constituted insurable interest. Before the Gambling Act, the courts were pretty agreed that a person could have an insurable interest in their own life. 
That's how you could take out an insurance policy on yourself, especially back in the days when policies were used as collateral on a debt. It didn't take long before the issue of how much insurable interest a wife had in her husband came up for debate. In 1777, a woman named Mary Spencer came before the English court regarding a life insurance policy she had taken out on her spouse, a man of some consequence who had died in the West Indies. For the purposes of inheritance, his sister was his heir. So it was a pretty smart move on Mary's part to take out a policy. It was unclear, though, whether or not Mary knew that her husband had set up an annuity for her in the case of his death in the amount of 500 pounds per year. When he died, the life insurance refused to pay. They claimed that the annuity was sufficient to support Mary in the manner she had been accustomed to, and that that was the extent of her financial interest in her husband's life, basically, that awarding her the benefits from the life insurance policy would be considered a windfall she didn't deserve. Luckily for Mary, they lost. A woman's interest in her husband's life was indistinguishable from his own, and there was no limit to that interest. And the idea that all she was entitled to was money to keep her social status in place was insufficient. Some of the issues related to insurable interest were those that the Gambling Act specifically prohibited, but society later decided served such an important community purpose, they were allowed anyway. Specifically, after the 1850s, it became common for people, especially lower middle class people and working class people, to take out low-cost, low-value insurance policies to pay for the funeral expenses for family members. These types of policies, called burial insurance, were still considered a type of life insurance by definition. While technically illegal, funeral expenses weren't exactly an insurable interest in someone's life by any definition of the word, the courts turned a blind eye. Today, most of these issues are clarified through laws based on jurisdiction. For example, in Scotland, legally children have no insurable interest in their parents. In England, you cannot take out a life insurance policy on your child. In the United States, these issues are considered generally states' rights issues, and so each state has a slightly different take on it. One thing that was initially decided in the United States at the federal level was whether or not you could sell a life insurance policy to someone else. The U.S. Supreme Court determined you could do this in a 1911 case named Grigsby v. Russell. If you recall in the Piggott case, the beneficiary of the policy, Codrington, basically transferred the policy to the Earl of March, a third party who was not related to him. This idea of a person unknowingly being insured by someone was something that the Gambling Act sought to address. The Act didn't specifically mention selling an existing policy to someone else, but certainly changing the beneficiary from a person who had an insurable interest, the son, to someone who really did not, the Earl of March, was something that fell into that gray area of questionably legal. But in Grigsby v. Russell, the court determined that a life insurance policy was considered personal property, and therefore it was something that could be transferred to another person at the policyholder's discretion. While this ruling was in 1911, the practice of selling policies didn't really take off until the 1980s as a result of the AIDS crisis. In the 1980s, AIDS was considered a death sentence as sufferers had an average lifespan of just two years after diagnosis. The industry came up with an idea of something called viatical settlements. 
Since many people with AIDS in the 1980s did not typically have legal spouses or children to leave their life insurance benefits to, the industry thought it would be a good idea to allow AIDS patients to sell their policies to a third party, and in compensation for that sale, to receive some amount of money, though not the total death benefit, while they were alive. They could use that money to help pay for medical care. And the industry got a new way to make money through the buying and selling of policies and the fees that supported that process. Typically, the patient who had an existing life insurance policy would sell their policy to a broker, who would then sell it to a third party, often an individual investor. The third party would then hold the policy until the person died and then collect the total life insurance benefit from the insurance company. As more drugs were created to fight AIDS and HIV, it became less necessary for people to sell policies, but the train was out of the station and what had become a very large industry, often plagued by fraud, was on the edge of collapse. So instead, they decided to open the process up to other terminally ill people as well as to seniors who wanted to sell their policies and get a smaller payment while they were still alive. Not surprisingly, this industry has been plagued by scandal and fraud, but it persists today. It's safe to say without the Gambling Act of 1774, life insurance might not exist today. And in that sense, when it comes to the insurance versus history face-off, this is one situation where insurance won. I have to say that the history of life insurance turned out to be really interesting, and it isn't something I knew anything about before I started researching this podcast episode, so expect a lot more on this topic sometime soon. And I guarantee I will say the word tontine, 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 a lot. Seriously, it's just a super fun word to say. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. You can also join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurance vs history so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. See you next time. Mm-hmm.